Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we'll be talking about the intersection of international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. This is our fourth episode and today we're going to talk about the European Union. Now, Simon, in your work, you have emphasized that the problems that the world faces today are just too big for any single country to face alone. And, you know, I absolutely I agree with you. But uh, that then that then brings us along to uh, mechanisms by which nations can work together to solve shared problems. And one of the best examples of this right now is the European Union. So what I hope we can do uh, today is think about the European Union and how it's perceived around the world and whether it's actually delivering on a promise of contributing to global good. It's a really interesting question. I mean, if you look at the European Union from certain angles, it looks like little more than a very large self-interest group. When we were having discussions about Brexit, that point came up. The question was, did the, the United Kingdom leave the European Union partly because of that reason? that the EU is inward-looking and, in that sense, rather the opposite of globally-minded. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because the, the, the EU does look inwards. It is a self-interest group. Um, of course, it also collaborates and cooperates broadly and widely with other parts of the world, mainly on trade. Um, so does it look inwards or does it look outwards? Does it matter? These are, I think, interesting questions. I, personally, the more time that passes, the less enthusiastic I am about these uh, rigid permanent groupings of countries in the context of solving the, the grand challenges, the SDGs. Because I think that the problems that humanity is facing today probably in the end need, a more, need more agile structures. And one of the things that I've been preaching very hard to the countries I advise over the last five or six years now is a more agile form of multilateralism. In fact, I even invented a horrible phrase for it, entrepreneurial multilateralism. This is a hell of an expression. It's very, very hard to pronounce. I've been practicing for years and almost impossible to type. One day you should try typing entrepreneurial multilateralism and see how, how long it takes you. But the, the thought behind it is basically a fairly radical one, modestly, uh, in the sense that what I think should be happening is that countries on an ongoing basis, not just countries, but also cities, regions, corporations, international institutions, and all the rest of them, should be looking at the challenges that humanity is facing today and saying to themselves, which one or ones of those could we do something about? Have we got the experience or the interest or the will or maybe the threat to really want to do something about that? And then you go out and you make coalitions of the willing three or four other countries, maybe a big corporation, maybe a powerful individual. You throw something together, you set yourselves a mandate. You don't wait for the UN to tell you. It's not illegal. You're a sovereign nation. You can do what you like. You do it collectively. You set yourself a timeline and you say, let's try and really move the needle on small arms proliferation in the next five years. Us and Botswana, Guatemala, Greenland and Djibouti and, and Bono, Bono <laughs> together. And, and here's our target for five years. And then you just go ahead and do it. And then when you've done that, you go and do something else. And I just, you know, that seems to me to be perhaps a little bit more versatile and more useful than the, than the European 
union as a mastodon. As a... Well, the, the danger with, a, with an institution like the European Union is that it becomes about perpetuating the institution rather than dealing with the problem. And you see a, a kind of a... a, a Sclerosis. A yeah, that's right. But as you've looked at data coming in, do you have a sense that, non, that member states, first of all, that member states see the European Union as a, a positive presence in their lives? Does that, does that show up in, in your uh, data? I don't have any very recent data on the from the Nation Brands Index on the image of Europe as a whole. But then again, as I've um, reminded our listeners on more than one occasion, the Nation Brands Index is quite rightly regarded as the most boring social survey ever conducted for the simple reason that people just never seem to change their minds about countries, about places. So anything that we can measure in the NBI over five years, you can assume it's probably not going to change. So the last time I measured the European Union in the Nation Brands Index, exactly for all the world as if it were a country, we just stuck it in there. We called it the European Union. It might have been wise to try something else because not everybody knows what that means. But anyway, it came top. It was the, This was in 2006. The most admired country on earth, if it were a country. Well, but then what do you expect? Because as, as, as you said a minute or two ago, you put together all those fabulous cities, all of those fabulous brands, you know, this is Benetton plus Mercedes plus Burberry. What, you know, what more could you desire? It's, it's the sexiest conglomeration of countries on the planet. And I think people looked at that and they said, European Union, what's that? Oh, that's just the official name for Europe. And isn't Europe the most attractive region on the planet to many people? Yes, and if we look at the conventional uh, numbers in the Nation Brands Index, uh, the the top ten is dominated by uh, states that are members of the European Union. Not, yeah, not as much as the Good Country Index. In, in the Nation Brands Index, which is, the, let's remind people, that's the measure of perception, public perceptions of countries, places like Canada, Japan, are frequently up there in the top ten, in fact, nearly always. Yes, there is a preponderance of European states. And, and, and the Good Country Index, on the other hand, which measures their external impacts, that is absolutely unquestionably dominated by European member states. But let's not get stuck on that. I mean, I think the, the interesting thing about the EU it, is that it is, as Europe, as a, just simply a group of states, it is massively admired and therefore exercises phenomenal quantities of soft power. If we look at attacks on the European Union, and now it's uh, regularly in the sights of strongman regimes, they tend to demonise Brussels, and rather than using the European Union as a, as a whole, that they're picking out the a bureaucracy in Brussels as as the sort of the straw man. I'm thinking here of Hungary, or and even you see it in the, the rhetoric in uh, within the UK was uh, Brussels was the problem. Yes, absolutely. I was going to say, I mean, it is, you don't you don't just need a, a right wing strongman to do that. That's the habit of all member states, almost. The politicians for the governments of all member states is to blame the EU every time they personally screw up and to take the credit every time the EU delivers something this good. Was the thing, this was the thing that bothers me. I can understand why Margaret Thatcher would criticise the European Union. But the problem it seems to me more that when something goes well, Mm. That a politician who believes in the European Union, like Tony Blair, doesn't give great credit to the European Union, but takes the credit for himself or, or for his political party or his own policies. And so the good things the European Union has done in a number of nation states become a, a 
obscured. And you can see the same problem. I'm sure you've run into this with other uh, well-meaning politicians in uh, countries around the north of Europe who don't routinely pass on credit to the European Union. Well, nobody's told them that that's what they need to do, and there's no obvious interest in them doing it. And there is an obvious interest in them claiming the benefit themselves. And this is the this is the fate of of um, of membership organisations around the world. Um, incidentally, it's exactly the same problem with globalisation. Politicians and governments all over the world routinely blame globalisation every time they make a mistake or things go wrong. And they routine, routinely take personal credit for everything good that globalization delivers. And therefore, just like the European Union, it's not surprising if globalization tends to get itself a bad name because it's constantly being badmouthed by the nation states. And this is a problem. It's a problem for the EU. It's a problem for globalization. Well, you can see there are some EU specific reactions around the world. You know, I, if you Google the European Union in the United States, you get into some very, very weird, Google will suggest some weird things like European Union conspiracy, European Union antichrist, European Union prophecy. And there's an assumption that it's the most mild is that it's an anti-American conspiracy. Mm. Uh, The most extreme is that it's an anti-Christian conspiracy. Mm. And uh, part uh, one of the, the things criticized or prophesied rather in the in the book of revelations mm. i think i wish they'd had their uh, their meeting in reykjavik rather than in helsinki or oh, sorry if they had their meeting in uh reykjavik rather than rome uh, to sign that original uh, uh the treaty mm. because it, rome has so much prophetic resonance yeah, that yeah. you just ran into all kinds of you know madrid would have been uh, wherever wherever they had uh, anywhere would have been better than uh than rome um but, but this is typical American rhetoric, isn't it? And, and America has always had to be absolute and unique. And the way that it's established its absoluteness and its uniqueness and its power in part uh, is by making an enemy of every other system and every other approach, even the very innocent, uh, mild welfare states of the Nordics are branded as being uh, hardline communist regimes. Um, <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, it's a very... It's a very um, a polarized view of the world, let's put it that way. I find tremendous amnesia when people talk about the European Union as an anti-American conspiracy, when you know the reality is that the United States worked really hard in the 1950s to promote uh, European integration and uh, collective European thinking. And it's, it's more a success of American foreign policy in long-term terms than, than some, kind of the, some institution that's there to frustrate the United States. And it has tremendous potential for partnership yeah. with the United States. But this, this paranoia about Europe in the United States, it isn't, um, uh, it, it's, it's not a historical misunderstanding. It's a modern construction. It's been created deliberately um, for the reason that all paranoid myths are created, because they um, they help to push public opinion in a direction which is helpful for the person or people who are pushing it. Um, but, you know, when it comes to these conspiracy theories, I think that people get what they deserve, quite honestly. I mean, you know, if you're if you're prepared to believe stuff like that, you know, you deserve the consequences of believing it. You know, as we look at the European Union projecting itself into the world, I wonder if its inability to, or its choice not to play rough, its turn away from the projection of hard power and the sense that it isn't 
even either strong or particularly well organized might actually be an advantage. And if people might like to encounter a European Union, which is not intimidating in the way that the United States positions itself as intimidating and uh, China positions itself as, uh, as intimidating. It's interesting. I mean, part of that is very obviously uh, due to the simple fact that the European Union isn't a state. And it's very easy to ascribe malevolent intentions, ambition, arrogance to an individual state because we personify states in our minds. And we think of America as being one place governed by one individual with one aim. Um, and it's easy if you're in the mood to be paranoid to be to, to, to fear a country like that because there's this perception, this illusion that countries have a single strategy and a single goal. Nobody could really think that about the European Union because it's obviously just a committee. It's a group of nation states. And the idea that it could have a single-minded purpose or goal, I think, is very far from most people's imagination. But beyond that obvious distinction, yes, indeed. I mean, partly, of course, it's where Europe has come from. Europe existed in the first place um, in an effort to repudiate conflict within its own boundaries. So it's not really surprising if its rise has been a deliberately peaceful one. And if it's in its in its uh, external policies, it deliberately shuns confrontation because, uh, you know, it's been there and it doesn't want that again. But also uh, it's it's the collective culture of European nation states. You put all of those cultures together and you get something very moderate, very mild, very collective and surprisingly cohesive. Yeah, I think that it's been very interesting to see the mechanisms that the European Union has used to develop internal dialogue and understanding. And to me, the most important one has been the Erasmus exchange. Yeah. And the way in which it's just second nature now for people to spend uh, a year completing their education in another, in another country is terrific for broadening the mind. But you know, 10 years into the program, when the EU did their survey of uh, Erasmus outcomes, it was really striking how many intermarriages have come out of the Erasmus program. It's something like 25% of people marry someone from the country to which they travel, and 30%, 33% marry somebody who is from a country other than their own. So it really... It's not just creating a cosmopolitan mindset. It seems to be creating cosmopolitan families and uh, people whose worldview is is based in uh, at a European level rather than a, a, a parochially nationalist level. Which, which is why um, the United Kingdom inexplicably making the decision to walk away from the Erasmus programme as part of Brexit was just so spiteful and pointless and childish and self-destructive. I suppose the reason was partly in order to please the Brexiteers and just say, look, we're leaving everything. And that was an easy thing to leave. Um, but also partly because it then enabled them to set up a, uh, you know, their own British version of it, which which waves flags around and says, this is for us. This is, this is not for everybody else. But it's a tragedy. It's a, a real, real loss to the UK that, that, that we walked away from that program. On a smaller scale, it's, um, it somewhat resembles the Elysee Treaty between, between France and Germany. This uh, systematic, thoroughgoing, long-term, wise, progressive, peace-oriented decision 
to make the French and the Germans friends forever. And I, I wasn't obviously doing the Nation Brands Index uh, before de Gaulle and Adenauer started uh, planning. <laughs> In fact, I was born at around about the time they started planning the, the, the Elysee Accord. But I, I was certainly around to measure the consequences. And even today, 60 years later, when I look in the Nation Brands Index, question after question after question, the French rank the Germans number one favorite country for uh, so many different aspects, and the Germans rank the French number one. That's extraordinary given where things stood a few years previous, should we just say a few years previously, given 500 years of uh, enmity, warfare, and mechanized slaughter. The, the origins of that treaty are, are not, it's not a top-down treaty. It's not uh, leaders of the two countries decided it had to happen and forced it on the people. You can see how 1945-46, mayors are getting in touch with each other between France and, and Germany. You've got religious ministers yep. connecting to each other. School exchanges. Yeah, it was just the two populations being knitted together as comprehensively as could be imagined. But then this gets us to the problem of the enmity we have within the European Union today and the ways in which the Eastern countries are straining against some of the values they signed up for 20 years ago. And how do you think the European Union can deal with the divergent path chosen by Hungary, uh, chosen right now by Poland, some of the noises coming out of Czechoslovakia, uh, what mechanisms can they use today to bring those countries to bring those countries back into the fold? Well, I think I think that one has to try to to bottle some of the essence of the Elysee Accord and make it part of the everyday operating mechanism of the European Union. I think that you know it's yes, it's a wonderful example of what France and Germany did, but it's what the EU should be doing all the time with all of its member states. Uh, um, otherwise, there's always the risk of backsliding, depending on which particular country you're talking about or which particular government is is in power. I mean, the Elysee Accord is a fantastically powerful recipe. I, when I was advising uh, Felipe Calderon in Mexico back in 2012, I actually put forward a serious proposal that the United States and Mexico should copy the Elysee Accord. And with the same deliberate intention, this would have been between Calderon and Obama, doing uh, an Adenauer and de Gaulle and sitting down and mapping out how they were going to uh, work out a program over 10, 20, 30 years, however long it took, to make sure that the Americans and the Mexicans would be friends forever. Because in my view, the uh, historical enmity and mistrust between Mexico and the United States was for very different but equally potent reasons the cause of as much difficulty in the Americas and consequently also worldwide as between France and Germany in the in the 1960s and, and, and prior to that. And the rewards would have been as great and may yet be. I mean, I still think it's a project that could take place. And the recipe is so simple. And we have this wonderful example, this historical example that shows us that it works. The ingredients couldn't be more obvious. It's cultural relations, diplomatic relations, people to people relations, persistent imaginative, prolonged. You know, this is something that I've, I've argued for as well with the US, uh, between US and Mexico and bringing in Canada too, to have a kind of North American cultural, uh, if you like, a cultural version of, uh, of, of NAFTA. Well, that's interesting. So we got to the same point. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's nice that there's going to be a joint World Cup 
I mean, those sorts of things where all three countries are getting together to host a mega event. I feel optimistic about that. But the problem within exchanges seems to me to be that um, asymmetry and that when one partner to an exchange is much more powerful than the other, it can put in a dynamic, a, a, a teacher-pupil dynamic. or And, and the, one of the great advantages of the Franco-German rapprochement was the tremendous similarity between those those two countries that they could respect each other and see each other as almost like mirror images of one another. And I think that was a tremendously useful thing. My suspicion is the more asymmetrical, the harder it becomes. Well, I think you're right, but I would be positive about that and just say, well noted. And that's obviously one of the parts of the brief that you write yourself beforehand and say there is the danger here that this could become one-sided or unequal. I would like to think that in this day and age, 60 years uh, after the the, the Franco-German rapprochement, we as uh, civilizations have got much more sensitive to these topics. The fact that we're so extremely careful these days, and this is largely driven by America, to avoid offending people of different cultures, people of um, less power, less wealth, and all the rest of it. I think that we're in a better place now to uh, appreciate those sensitivities between nations than we were 40 years ago. One could easily imagine that if you tried to create a rapprochement in 1960 between France and Senegal, it would have been horrendously unequal and demeaning for Senegal. Today, I think we have reason to expect that it would be a little better. Um, And likewise, perhaps between the United States and Mexico. This gets us, I think, to the question of where the European Union has assets and what the uh, advantages the Union enjoys. When we were chatting before before we began recording, I was thinking about the, the great power that lies in, in the world-class cities located within Europe, mm-hmm. the world-class regions located within Europe, and how unintimidating and attractive those those are and how that they um you know they live in people's imagination in so many places uh in the world think of the, the you know the the pulling power of of venice or uh or, or, or paris or the south of france or uh the alps how do you think the european union is doing enough to uh, allow these regions and and cities to speak for themselves and to contribute to the image of the whole Oh, I don't think that there's much that anybody could do to prevent that from happening. I mean, the European Union does make uh, structural funds available to subnational regions in all the member states uh, to promote themselves for tourism and foreign investment and all the rest of it. So the uh, the tendency is there on the part of of the European Union to to encourage that kind of behaviour. Absolutely agree with what you say about the value of that pearl necklace of European cities. It's, uh, you know, it's one of the one of the glories of the union. I even suggested when I was still trying to get over the shock of Brexit, that this would be a good time to create a European Union of Cities, which could be a separate, somewhat parallel organisation, and which London and Oxford and Cambridge and Edinburgh, and the cities in the UK that didn't on the whole uh, vote for Brexit could could join and remain part of. And, and this is quite interesting because, of course, a theme that comes up often in our, in our world, in our subject, is the idea of cities beginning to become more and more recognized as diplomatic entities, players in their own right. 
And again, we've we've mentioned it in our podcast, the idea of the return to the medieval city-state and um, and and the power shifting back to the. There is the, there was this crea- creation a few years ago of a global parliament of mayors. Yes, that's uh, right. Which met in uh, Amsterdam, and what was interesting about that is that you know it wasn't so much the mayor's speaking as the mayor's listening yes. and um, emphasizing what they had in common. And they were plainly all working on solutions to the same kinds of issues. It was such an optimistic, yeah. uh, such an optimistic um, uh, event and uh, a great, uh, a great start um, mm. to be having those kinds of conversations. I, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I'm sure that the city, the city is going to be much more significant as a diplomatic actor going forward. And the, and the relationship between citizens and their cities seems to be often more benign than the relationship between citizens and their, and their nation. And that's something to do with sheer size. I mean, one of the things I've found advising countries over the years is that a nation that, that's more than three or four million is just almost literally ungovernable. You know, one pretends to govern a country the size of the United States of America or Mexico, but or or Indonesia. But in reality, that's not governing. The central government, the federal government is simply too far from the governed uh, for that to be a happy or productive or intimate relationship. And stop me if I'm repeating myself, but I was was reading Cosimo de' Medici and talking about his love for Florence. So, okay, he practically owned the place, but I'm sure it was the same for most Florentine citizens in, in, in the Middle Ages. And when he'd finished spending all the money he'd spent on himself that he possibly could, it was natural for him to then go on and spend the rest of it on his city, glorifying his city, glorifying the name of Florence, glorifying his own name. And it worked because here we are in 2021 still talking about him, or at least I am. Um, And uh, it suddenly occurred to me that that the relationship that Florentines had with their city-state in the 15th century or whenever was a relationship of mutual love and, and trust. Um, and respect. And today that's been converted into a relationship of prostitution, that we we fling a handful of coins at our governments and we say, just manage it. And you won't hear from me unless you screw up. And if you screw up, I'll ring customer service and I'll complain. And this is a relationship which is frankly pathological. That's not how you run a place. So I'm just wondering when and where and how and at what level we're going to rediscover that relationship of mutual love and trust between citizens and their place and easier to do by far at the level of the city or the city-state than at the level of of the vast um, federal nation. Well, you know, my feeling about this, well, my experience of cities is that it is so much easier to assimilate to a city identity Hmm. and that city identities are much less contested than the national identity. You know, when I lived for many years in Birmingham, the Brummie identity was available to newcomers uh, in a way that the the English identity was uh, kept out of of reach. But you could be 100% Brummie very, very swiftly. And, And my own experience in LA has been that it took me uh, it took me a, a week to feel like an Angelino. It took me a year to feel like a Californian. And I don't think I will ever really feel uh, 100% American, whatever the color of my passport, that there's just so much baggage around those national level uh, identities. I was just going to say maybe something to do with the physical size of the place, because a city is a concrete thing. You can see it. It's there. You live in it. A nation is just an idea. 
and ideas are easier to protect and fluffier and generally vaguer and all kinds of uncomfortable ideas can be wrapped up in them without anybody even noticing. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks very much for listening. I'm still Nick Cole. And I will be Simon Anholt forever.